Well, good morning. I've got to work out how far I can go this way. Normally when I'm speaking, I go all the way across the room and all the way back. So this morning's message, um, I have created a message just for this morning based upon what Jonathan asked me to do, which was to speak into the challenges that we're hearing about and facing uh, in our finances. So I've called this this morning, and I'm kind of seeing in my mind two groups. So I've given it two titles. First of all, crisis and challenge. And secondly, content and comfortable. And you might cross over between the one and the other, but you won't hear me talk about the title until I get to the end. So all I want you to do is just to allow the words that I share winged into your hearts by the Holy Spirit who will speak the truth into you. Isn't it Dan who always says you're not obligated to believe the words of the speaker but we are obligated to believe the word of God. So before I start, uh, I just want to welcome a few people. First of all, those of you who are online every week um, sharing in the ministry and being part of this service. But I would particularly like to welcome a brother and his family who they've texted me to say they are watching. Uh, Anatoly on the left and Svetlana. I met Anatoly in 2007. He in Ukraine was one of the first countries to teach these biblical finances outside of the United States. And he and I were connected at the very beginning. And we've been to conferences together. Svetlana has joined us. And they are very, very dear brothers and sisters. I'm in contact with Anatoly probably four or five times a week. Anatoly, I cannot begin to tell you that I understand what it's like to have four or five air raid sirens every night. I will not tell you that I understand what it's like to have missiles being fired over your head. And we just continue to pray for peace and solutions in your beloved and very, very resourceful country. Uh, so beyond uh, Anatoly and Svetlana and the two boys, I'd also like to welcome Will, who lives in Georgia, in Atlanta. Will and his wife, Lee, were my adult Sunday school leaders when Rhoda and I lived in the USA. And finally, Richard, who's a father of three children in Zimbabwe, who's written to me this week saying he has real significant financial challenges. And then there is Noel in Ghana, who uh, first met me when I was lecturing uh, accountants in Ghana, and he then started the Biblical Finance Ministry over in Ghana. So welcome to all of you. Now let's get back. Uh, many, many years ago, I lived in Wolverhampton. Then it was a town, now it's a city. And I was brought up with my brother and mother. And all the clothes that my brother and I wore were bought from this shop. And about eight weeks ago, for the first time when we were in Wolverhampton, 
I drove Rhoda into the place where the nearly new shop was. But you know what? Even though all of my clothes were second-hand, I can tell you that as a kid, I never ever was discontent. I never looked at the clothes that other people wore. In fairness, going back 60 years ago, I guess there were the brands and what have you and the styles. But I can tell you honestly that um, I've always, always been content. Now in the top right-hand corner, and I think Jonathan will forgive me for this, there is the coat of arms of Wolverhampton. It looks a bit like this. And there is a motto on the coat of arms. It simply says this, Out of darkness cometh light. And Father, this morning we ask you that where there is darkness, that you will bring light. Father, I ask you that your word will bring truth into every single one of us according to our need, whether we're in crisis or whether we feel comfortable. Heavenly Father, by the power and presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, will you speak your word this morning? Amen. So having confessed that I was brought up in the wonderful city of Wolverhampton, I'd like to take you back to what mum used to do. She used to take me to church every single Sunday. And then I realised that uh, other um, friends of mine had pocket money. We never had any pocket money. Uh, One day when I was watching Blue Peter, uh, mum had left her bank statement out on the table. I looked at it, and to this day I can remember how upset I was when I found out that mum only had six pounds in her bank account. Come on, a six or seven-year-old doesn't understand finance, but I got the fact that we didn't seem to have any money. I didn't realise that she got paid for going to work. Um, I saw some money coming in from my father, which uh, was part of the arrangements when they got separated. And so I had the opportunity at the age of eight to take my first job. And forgive me if I call it that, but my first job was to go to church as a choir boy, and as long as I went to Friday choir practice, Sunday morning service, and Sunday evening service, I got nine pence a week. Now, for those of you that don't understand nine pence, it is approximately 4p in today's money. And we got paid every 13 weeks. And can I tell you, the excitement when I got that little brown envelope with money in, because I could go and buy sweets, I could even go to two or three games of the football club that I was starting to follow. So this is St. Jude's Church in Wolverhampton. Um, If ever you've been to Wolverhampton, take a trip down Tettenhall Road. If you keep going down Tettenhall Road, you'll end up at some very, very, very posh houses. Uh, You'll have passed where I lived a long time ago. Um, But those houses are all occupied by footballers, so you get the idea. It's uh, down the road, it's quite upper-class, prestigious and wealthy. But where I live, not quite so. So this is the church inside, and the nave you can see at the top. For those of you that have been Anglican, um, I was on the Decani side. So you have two sides to the nave, Decani and Cantoris, and I was a choir boy in white surplus, stiff collar, and I used to belt all these songs out. And then there was a time, right now, like this, when the vicar would get up to give a sermon. 
That meant that during the last hymn, before the sermon, we choir boys would all traipse down and sit so that we would crane our necks to look up at the preacher. For you can imagine as an eight-year-old how interested I was in listening to some boring old vicar. Not a lot. So I sat down the front, Cantorus was on the left, Decay and I was on the left, there were about eight of us on each side, and I got going with my Sunday morning. That meant that uh, I would look at the hymn boards on both sides and I would add them up. 136, 238, 349. And I'd come up with 863. That's on the left-hand side. So then I'd go to the right-hand side and I'd do exactly the same thing to make sure that the numbers on both sides were the same. So having added 136, 249, I then decided I should start on the right-hand side and go downwards and see if I could carry the numbers forward. Anyhow, that would take me about seven minutes. <laughs> so then at the front of the church, there were two cardboard signs, which we choir boys had to look at. The one on the left said, the family that prays together stays together. I thought, well, we don't do that, but I get it. But the one on the right totally bemused me. It said something like, one in three and three in one makes the Holy Trinity. Boy, I didn't understand that. It took me decades before I got to work it out. So being a choir boy in St. Jude's Church gave me an understanding of earning money and it gave me an understanding that I loved numbers. I loved numbers so much that when I took my GCEs, which, pre, which were the forerunners to GCSEs, I took maths twice just so I could add an extra GCE to my tally. So I joined the choir, and at the end of the service I'd walk down and mum would be waiting for me. <coughs> and at the age of eight, we were walking back home. And as I was walking back home, um, we got to the corner of the Crescent where we had a flat. And as we got there, there was a man, <coughs> excuse me, Rhoda said, share your testimony. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to share something I don't normally share. Um, I got to the edge of the, uh, the road and there was a man there. And my mother said to me, that's your father. Um, I'm a schoolboy. I knew that everybody else had parents. Um, but I never said anything to my schoolmates about the fact that I didn't have a father. In those days, there was one channel, BBC. How on earth is an eight-year-old supposed to know that he has a father? Hey, I certainly didn't. Uh, so I got to spend time with this man called my father. In all the years I knew him, I can't ever tell you that he loved me. Uh, he didn't see me very often. Uh, he would occasionally come down. I eventually realized that the reason he was coming down was to persuade my mother to get a divorce so that he could remarry. So I didn't understand what it was to have a father. Until I got to the age of 32. And one or two of you might even have been around and have been in attendance. But over there in Henry Street, uh, we had a morning meeting for men. And at this morning meeting, there was a gentleman called David Matthew talking. 
and he was talking about the fatherhood of God. And I sat there mesmerized because as far as I was concerned, I didn't have a dad. And he unfolded how God was my heavenly father. There were about 80 people in the room. And I can't tell you why it worked out like this, but I can tell you what happened. And that is that at the end of the meeting, um, David got up with the person from Bath Church who was leading the meeting. And he said, you know, has God spoken to anybody? So what do I do? Well, of course, I put my hand up. And then the next thing, the gentleman who's leading the meeting says, would you come down the front? And I mean, I am stunned because I'm an Anglican. We don't do that in the Anglican church. So I'm, so, I'm rooted to my seat and I realize I've got to get up. So I walk all the way down the front of the church, sorry, the, the, the basement. I turn around. Um, anybody there that day? I'm the kid who burst into tears. And I kept on crying because I thought, surely the leader will pat me on the shoulder and say, there, 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 go and sit down. But he didn't. Who was the leader that day? <laughs> Our friend Paul. And I thank him for the fact that eventually, when I realized I actually couldn't cry anymore, I stood up and shared my testimony. You'll recognize the building, so let me just bring you another story from life. There was a time when uh, I'm just an accountant running an accountancy business, but I happened to have a client who owned some land, and we were negotiating the sale of the land. The land now is where the MOD is in Filton, so it's quite a large piece of land. And I was working with a surveyor who was helping us work out the value. And uh, Dan's father, who was pastor of the church, called me up four o'clock on a Friday and said, Mark, uh, we've spent two years trying to find out who owns the forum. Nobody in the city knows who owns the forum. Could you help us find out who owns the forum? So I said, I'll give it a go. So I phoned Ted who Jill knows as well. And four o'clock on a Friday, I, tell, I say to Ted, my church wants to know who owns the forum. 10 o'clock on Monday morning, Ted phones up and says, you will not believe this, but my next door neighbor is the estates manager for C&A Modes, and they hold the forum offshore because they don't want anybody to know who owns it. Six days later, Peter and I walked down this aisle. Ted was with us. Nobody knew where the lights were. There were just the three of us. And as we got down the front, Peter wisely had brought a torch with him. And he took hold of the torch and shone the light all the way around a building that we don't think had been entered for years. So he went all the way around and the light shone into the darkness. And then finally, and some of you have heard this story, 
Dan's father put the torch onto the balcony and I was there with him, the two of us, as he uttered what I believe are prophetic words. One day we will fill that balcony. And the word I heard was not when there's conferences, it's when this church has grown to the point where we use in the balcony. And if you really want to know what I think, I believe that after all the leaderships that we've had in the last 40 years, Pastor Jonathan and his wife are going to lead this church forward and we will see. And can I tell you, Pastor Jonathan, I'll be up there that day when that's open. So anyhow, you've, let's just get back to some numbers. Uh, don't you love the Word of God? I, I had the Canadian students one afternoon for a, a talk on biblical finance, and I said, so how many books are there in the Bible? Oh. Do you know the answers? They're up on the screen. It's wonderful, isn't it? Don't you love numbers? Well, at least I do. Two parts to the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. 66 books going from Genesis to Revelation. 1,189 chapters, 31,102 words. I'm talking King James here. Not the message, you've got to put a naught on for the message. And if I got the numbers right in my head, it's 773,692 words. The Bible is amazing. It was written by over 40 authors. Not one of the authors of the Bible was a writer. Their occupations were diverse from being tent makers, princes, military leaders, uh, doctors. It was written over 1,500 years with a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and New Testament. It was written on three continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. It was written in three languages, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Do you know, every book you and I read has a beginning and an end. The Bible does not follow the rule because the Bible doesn't start at the beginning because we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And it doesn't end at the end because we know that if we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we know that the 70 years that we have on this earth or whatever is going to lead us into eternity, where we're going to live forever with the saints that have gone before us. Whilst every good book has a turning point in the middle, the Bible obeys the turning point. Because you'll find that in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 118, verse 8, you get this verse. And the verse simply says this, it is better to trust in God than in man. And if you like, that's the central theme of what I'm going to be sharing this morning. It is better to trust in God than man. Man's economy, which drives this world, is not the same as God's economy. Man's economy is happy for you to get into debt. Man's economy is happy for you to spend why don't we, as those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, just dwell and ponder and ask ourselves, so what does the Bible say? Well, it's interesting, because do you know that 15% of Jesus' recorded words, 
talk about the handling of money and possessions. 16 of the 38 parables talk about the handling of money and possessions. Pastor Jonathan, if you wish to teach on prayer, you have 500 verses to look at. Pastor Jonathan, if you want to talk about faith, there are 500 verses. And get this, how important are the poor who the Bible tells us will always be with us? There are 300 verses in the Bible that talk about being generous to the poor. And we need to model generosity in order to reach out to those who are poor. Going up the scale, there are 700 direct verses in the Bible on money. Luke chapter 16, verse 11, tells us that we need to be faithful in the use of worldly wealth if we are to inherit the true riches of heaven. And in total, there's 2,350 verses that talk about the handling of money and possessions, more than any other subject in the Bible, apart from God himself. This is not taught in Bible seminaries. This is not taught in Bible colleges. There's a huge gap, and when God led Rhoda and I to America to meet the leaders of the ministry that we now represent around Europe, there are 22 countries in Europe that have leaders teaching about biblical finance. We were amazed to discover the truth, some of which we're sharing with you this morning. Don't you love the word all in Scripture? You know, these people who weren't writers were empowered by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is highly profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Let us turn to the word of God because 7% of the Bible talks about money and possessions. So what does the Bible say? And can I just say, it took me three months to get hold of this and to understand it. You can read verses, but do you allow them to permeate? The Bible makes it very clear that when we talk about my house, my car, my family, or my iPhone, it's all about I, isn't it? iPhone, iPad. The Bible corrects our thinking and makes it clear that the heavens and earth belong to the Lord. You see, if you go to Psalm 24, verse 1, Psalm 24, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything therein. For the avoidance of doubt, 1 Corinthians 10, 26 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything therein. It's a copy and paste over from the New Testament. And to actually get hold of God owning everything took me time. If you go to 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12, 1 Chronicles 29 tells us this. And if we move on from the word all, we have its companion. Everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord. And this is your kingdom. We adore you for being in control of everything. Riches and honour come from you alone. And it is at your discretion that men and women are given strength. 
this great big ball of fire has been hitting us, sending temperatures up 10 degrees. I don't understand this. The sun is 93 million miles away, and yet the temperature's gone up by a mere 10%. But boy, has that 10% had a massive impact on us. Um, Rhoda and I have a house that overlooks a field, and I kind of got very concerned about the 50 cows in the field. I said to Rhoda, she thinks I'm going round the bend, um, I'm concerned that they're getting sunstroke. I'm concerned that they are suffering because there's no shade in the field. And then clearly one day, the farmer felt sorry for them. So what did the farmer do? Um, he dumped silage on the field. I kid you not, not even a gas mask would have saved us from the excruciating smell that permeated our house. So that's the sun. Isn't it amazing when you look at the, the photographs that are coming back from the James Webb um, cameras that are going out billions and billions of miles? The Bible tells us he made it all. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our saviour. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, maker of the heavens and the earth, is our brother. I want to suggest to you that for the time that we have left on this earth, some many more years than others, but isn't that what Darius might have thought a week or so ago? 41 years of age, and Darius from Pop Idol has passed away. We know not when it is that we're going to go away. And to accept the Lord Jesus Christ is something that will enable us to take the bridge from life on earth to life in eternity in heaven. But in the meantime, let us pray that the Lord will give us a ministry where the sun never sets. I pray, Jonathan and Ruth, that your ministry will never set while you're building his church. I saw this quote the other day. Forgive me, I kind of liked it. Uh, life on earth. Uh, you, know, you know, I don't know. You and I do not know. We hear about the effect of ele on electricity, utility bills. I don't even want to go there because you have just as much understanding as I have. I kind of think, though, that we're at the precipice. We're at the dawn of some incredibly challenging times. Um, I'm going to divide the church up. I don't mean divide in any okay, right. So I want you to imagine on this side of the church, and these are not trick questions, I want you to imagine that you are saving £1,000 a year for 40 years. At the end of 40 years, how much have you saved? Brilliant. I want you to imagine, sometimes people think I'm asking a trick question, but you've saved 40,000. On this side of the church, I want you to imagine that you have credit card debt of 5,555 pounds. Strange number. But at 18%, which is the typical rate of interest, you will pay interest of 1,000 pounds a year. 
And imagine that you don't pay off that debt and it stays for 40 years at 5555, paying a thousand pounds a year to the credit card company. Tell me, how much interest will you pay over 40 years? 40,000. So we have two scenarios. On this side, you're saving a thousand pounds a year for 40 years. On this side, you're paying the credit card company a thousand pounds a year for 40 years. Two lots of 40,000. I pressed the wrong button. So saving interest um, of 2%, which is approximately the rate you might be able to get, your 40,000 will turn into 61,000 pounds. So the 40,000 that you've invested equals 61,000. Over here, can you imagine how much money the credit card company makes out of the 40,000 that you've paid them at 18%? Anyone like to chuck out a number? Half a million. More? Keep going. Do I hear anything over 500,000? No. <laughs> Close. At 18%, this is what I call wicked. Forgive me for using the word. The Bible uses the word wicked a lot. Who said five million? Well done. The credit card co company make 4,580,000 out of that 40,000 pounds. Ted Kent, who used to head up Help Africa for Bryn Jones in um, Zambia, uh, used to talk about usury rates of interest. There's no question that when we are taking credit cards, we're going to pay high rates of interest. And if anybody ever has a store card, that 40,000 turns into 33 million. The truth is this, is that when we look at where we are today, we are in the grip of 10% inflation. We're in the grip looking at the prospect of a recession. We have massive challenges with the supply chain. We have global conflicts, Anatoly, in your country in Ukraine. We have uncertainties in China and the South Seas. And you think, you know what, I close my mind off to this. And most of the time I do, because I know that ultimately our God is in control. A man's economy is ruling everywhere, except for those who know Christ as Lord. So let's look at some of man's traps. Uh, change your credit card and have 0% interest. Buy it because you deserve it. Tricks of the world. Buy now, pay later. And then look at the Premier League football clubs. Aren't most of them sponsored by, credit, uh, by gambling companies? If you want to know what the Bible says about finance, the whole of 1 Timothy 6 is replete with counsel and advice. One of the things it says is that the love of money is a root of all evil. The Bible has a lot to say about debt. Interestingly, it doesn't say don't get into debt, but debt removes freedom. And in Proverbs 22 verse 7, it tells us this, the borrower is slave to the lender. Down in the southwest in Bristol, we know about the history of slavery. Do you know that uh, based upon the money charity statistics, and if any of you like numbers, money charity have a monthly letter with a load of them, 
the average unsecured debt for a couple is £7,646. So the Bible tells us that the borrower is slave to the lender. Incidentally, that's Proverbs 22, verse 7. If you just go back one verse to Proverbs 22, verse 6, it tells us this. Train up a child in the ways of the Lord, and he will not depart. I find it unbelievably exciting that those two verses come together. I kind of think that the Bible was written for today, and of course it was. It's so relevant to our lives. So how does Paul put it? You were bought as a price, do not become slaves of men. Jesus tells us about a spiritual power which lies behind money, which is it, money itself is intrinsically neutral, but how we use it isn't necessarily neutral. Mammon is a word used twice in the Bible, Matthew 6.24 and Luke 16.13. We can only serve God or mammon. What is mammon? Mammon is used as an instrument when we buy and when we sell. It demands our allegiance and in order to help us slip up, debt is an important tool. So what are some of the characteristics of mammon today? First of all, worry and anxiety, which we know are not fruits of the Spirit. Then it's so easy now. When I was a kid, everything was cash in my pockets. Now today, more than half the transactions, you have to use cards. So it's easy to mismanage money. We want it and we want it now. So the immediacy and the demands. Do you know that there's hundreds of adverts that we see every week? The purpose of every single advert is to make us discontent. It's to make us discontent. And we'll talk about discontent in a minute. We've become frustrated if we don't have it now. Uh, I have a budget of five pounds when I go out for impulse spending. Usually, that's a cup of coffee. Um, but, you know, I just don't go out and spend. I talk to my wife, Rhoda. She'll say, sometimes I frustrate her because she says, we've come out and looked at this for three times now and you still won't buy it. Well, you know, we'll just wait and see. <laughs> sometimes we think, you know, we can't afford to be generous. Greed is everywhere. Adverts make us discontent. Getting over your head with debt is one of the easiest things in the world. And there are even some that say, I love shopping, because we overestimate the power of money. Paul wrote very interestingly when he wrote to the Philippian church. He said this, I have learned. So what the first thing we get from that is we have to learn to be content. I have, to lear I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And in these coming days, being content, being at peace, giving thanks to God for what we have. Because remember, this is a country of plenty surrounded by a world of need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Paul said this, yeah, I know what it is to be in need. I was in need at the age of eight, so I got a job. And I shouldn't say that, should I? I went to be a choir boy but I went to go and earn some pocket money so I could go and buy some sweets. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. We should pray 
and train our minds by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit to not allow the things of this world to distract us. In Hebrews, we're told this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, again, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So we move on from talking about debt. We talk about the importance of contentment. And can you see how contentment might help us with managing our finances? It's also important to be generous. Um, somebody said, well, why is man's economy so different from God's economy? Well, you know, the, the reason why we talk about generosity is that when you are generous, you are telling yourself that you have enough. The world often gives in response to comic relief and children in need, and we give generously. But as Christians, as those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, as we give, remember it tells us this, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you remember the, um, the Macedonian church? In the midst of a severe trial, are we going to go through a severe trial? Yeah. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The Macedonian church gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. You know, if you remember nothing else this morning, just remember that actually if you connect your faith with your money, and isn't it true that churches often don't talk about finance other than perhaps in the context of giving? But when you see how many verses there are, you realize how important it is. God realizes that our finances compete for our allegiance with him. Luke wrote this. Um, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. These hands of mine have supplied their need. Some principles of generosity. Uh, we call them the pod of peas. First of all, priority, personal and proportionate. Paul wrote this. On the first day, priority, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his or her income. A percentage. You can read that. Of all that you give, I will give you a tenth. And I love the importance of being in advance a cheerful giver. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I struggled with this for years. And this is how I got over my struggle. I simply worked out the tithe when Rhoda and I have one of our annual meetings and Rhoda masterminds writing all the money out. So I am a cheerful giver because I know it's being given to the church. We don't have to be rich to be generous. We've simply got to be generous to be generous. Strong words from God when he simply said to the rich man, you are a fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And he finishes off in verse 34 by saying, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Interesting that he didn't say the other way around. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Not where your heart is, there will your treasure be. The Bible talks about saving regularly. 
uh, the plans of the diligent, steady plodding, as opposed to some people who've tried to get rich quick, which can lead to poverty. This is the story of Joseph and the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream to save in the years of plenty for the years of need. If you're in debt, we always teach people that you need to start saving as well as downsizing debt because we need to make sure that you never, ever, ever get back into debt again. Again, for me, this is one of the most impactful verses in Scripture. In these two verses, there are six warnings for those who want to get rich. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do know that the word fall in the Greek is a continuous falling, not a one-off fall. So we need to make sure that we don't fall into temptation, we don't fall into a trap, that we don't head for foolish and harmful desires. The word plunge, I mean the act of plunging and immersing is a sudden, and you'll end up in ruin and destruction. There couldn't be two verses that are more powerful for those of us who want more, more money. I said that I was going to start by talking about a crisis and challenge and comfortable and contentment. <clears throat> money is one of those things that people don't like to talk about. Proof. If I all said to you, put your hands up if you're earning 20 to 25,000, you with me? We don't like to talk about our finances. But if we listen to the media, if we take our eyes off our faith, we might feel depressed, down, helpless. But we have one who is going to reach down. And you know how we all want somebody to pull us up? Your saviour, your heavenly father, no matter what your circumstances, has got a grip and will take you through. He is your provider. So crisis and challenge, each of you will have had your own thoughts because um, as I speak, your brain is only occupied by about a quarter of my words. Three quarters of your brain, I hope, is under the influence of your presence of the Holy Spirit in your thinking. Are you worried? Are you stressed? Are you confused? I mean, I'm certainly uncertain as to what is coming in our direction. Do you perhaps feel that with the recession you might have job insecurity? Have you got debt? Incidentally, seven and a half thousand pounds worth of debt unsecured for every household on average. It was the same in July, August last year and two years ago. Some of us are on a pile of debt that never seems to reduce. Some of us have more month than money. And can you see your faith bills that you don't see how you can pay them. I mean, is utility costs really going to go from a thousand or whatever to four or five thousand? Maybe because you feel that your finances are so tight, you can't tithe. And all I want to say to you is this, is that everything belongs to God, not just the 10%. And we give back to God in thanks for what he has given us, and because we're obeying his word. 
Do you perhaps have inadequate savings? Are you struggling to be generous? If you're content and comfortable, answer the question, how much is enough? And I can answer that question, maybe not for you, but for many people, how much is enough? Enough is just a little bit more. Are you tithing? Do you practice generosity? Do you respond to the needs around? Remember that we are a people of plenty surrounded by a world of need. And I held myself back from saying this earlier. And I haven't even put all the words on the screen because I want you to hear this and I want you to meditate on it. You and I are never more like Jesus than when you're giving. You are never more like Jesus than when you're giving. Maybe you might feel that you have the ability to invest in the body here into the hardship fund. Wouldn't it be great if we could just rekindle our commitment to pouring into the house those that are, those that are comfortable and can ride this to give love and blessing and resource to those who are going through tough times. I said I'd come back to my title. And I shared with you at the beginning how I didn't, as far as I was concerned, have a father. And then just down the road in the basement in Henry Street, one day, I found I had a heavenly father. And I want to say to each and every one of you this morning, but particularly you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour, that you have a heavenly father that this morning wants to reach down and to put you in his arms and to love you. You do have a heavenly father who loves you. Remember I took hold of the torch when I started. And I want to say to you this morning that... Um, if there is darkness in your life, he has come to shine a torch on that darkness. The Bible tells us that we're all sinful. If we do not confess our sin, the only other option is to cover it up. And Christ came and the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And this morning I might have been sharing insights about finance, but you know what? The first thing is for you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You might have heard a message about Lord Jesus Christ dying for you. Um, I accepted Christ when I was about 12 years old, and he's been faithful to me ever since. There is a light here this morning so this morning, I believe that God wants to prove to all of us who he is. I just want to give you a few moments to think. And where's Carisha? Yeah. 
Rhoda was baptised in Southampton before we even met. And the verses that were read over her baptismal service were the words that you see on the screen. We met, we moved to Bristol, and as an Anglican I was, yes. So I got fully baptised and fully immersed. And 15 years after Rhoda had been baptised, these were my baptismal verses, exactly the same ones. <clears throat> and I want to read them. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in him. And I wanted you to just meditate on the words of turn your eyes upon Jesus because whether you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour, whether you feel that you have lost your way, his love and his ability to reach down as you turn your eyes onto him. So I want to finish by saying five things. Here's some action. Oh, incidentally, Jonathan will love this. Um, Rhoda and I go for an annual planning day. We like to make a treat for ourselves. So can you see where I took my wife, who comes from Southampton? And can I just say that on the left-hand side of Rhoda's head is my seat, provided I pay for my money, and this is my season ticket that gets me in to see Wolverhampton Wanderers. It's the seat where Jonathan sat and uh, he came to watch his team. As far as I was concerned, he was going to watch them lose. We went 2-0 up. Uh, yes, he's going to be defeated. 
But somehow, for some reason, his side came out in the second half and scored three goals. So he has good reason to remember that football ground. <laughs> so let's, hear, let's just go through some action planning. First of all, you cannot start assessing whether this is appropriate to you without praying. And I want to suggest to you that 7% of the Bible is about money and possessions. Whether you're in crisis or comfortable, I think it's a moment for saying, let's just pray. Plan, plan, plan. And then get going. If you're in a crisis, take away the fear. Give your concerns to the Saviour who loves you. Feeling comfortable? Be challenged. Be intentional with your finances and be generous. And again, one of my life verses is Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And look forward with hope. I hope for you this is a journey. First things first, we're going to send you some links where you can download some of the books that I've written. We've got books for children. On the 10th of September, Rhoda and I are running a course for the day on navigating your finance. There is on yourmoney.org free videos which cover the whole of that course. And that is the first time I've ever shared from the front of this church in 35 years. And I thank God that he gave Rhoda and I the calling um, and it's a privilege to come back. The first time I ever shared on finance from the Bible was as a result of Dan's dad saying, we're buying this church, can you come and help us raise the money? And so that was the first time. Who knows whether this will be the last time. But I want to thank Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Ruth for allowing us to share. And at this moment, Jonathan is supposed to rush up. <laughs> I was wondering where you were. And this, this isn't your... This isn't your... Team wise, you've never spoken before, Mark, so I'm sorry. <laughs>